thought it was a really appropriate song for Prince Philip. Race is complete, and I like the bit about the joy before the throne, the new throne that he's now joyfully, hopefully, standing next to, as opposed to the throne of Her Majesty. I met him once, actually, but the, uh, one, of being in the, one of the great things about being in the military is we often meet members of the royal family, and I met them lots over the years. And my best memory of him is the 50th anniversary of D-Day, which I had the privilege of living over in France and running the final beach parade of 11,000 veterans on the beach at Aramanche. And uh, he and the Queen took the salute and then spent ages chatting to the veterans with a real warmth of affection. Of course, he'd served in the war and so on, so he had a, a real link to the military. And he was a great guy. We, we, we'll all read lots of, of uh, comments about him. He was a man of great faith and challenged. One of the great stories is that he used to take notes during sermons and then give the preacher a hard time afterwards. So uh, put your pens away. I don't want to be given a hard time. So we're going to be looking at uh, Doubting Thomas today. We live, of course, in a world of doubters and skeptics. And we often judge people by one mistake, never letting them or the world around them forget it. When we think of David, we can think of his sins, forgetting what a great man he was in spite of all of his failures. And when we think of Jacob, we think of how he stole his brother's birthright. And when we think of Peter, we remember his denial. As Shakespeare said, the evil that men does live after them. The good is often interred with their bones. Which, of course, is exactly what happened to Thomas. He's only mentioned eight times in the New Testament, four of them simply in lists of the twelve apostles. But I reckon he was as steadfast and as loyal as the other eleven probably with more courage and common sense than most. But he's largely remembered because of his doubts, so much so that even today, when someone is skeptical, we call him or her a doubting Thomas. Yet the church has, has always had, and will always have, its doubting Thomases. I know, because in many respects, I'm one of them. Out of all of the apostles in the Gospels, I probably identify most closely with Thomas because I too wrestled with my doubts, lots of them, before accepting Jesus. I also identify with whoever it was that declared to the preacher after his sermon, in future, please tell me about your certainties. I've got enough doubts of my own. Maybe you too wrestle with the big questions of life, questions about the universe and how it works and what our place in it is. Questions about how faith and science inter intersect. How and why prayer does or does not work. Why ba bad things happen to good people. Why children suffer and wicked seem to prosper. Questions about the Bible. How should we understand and interpret it? And what are the consequences if we get it wrong? And in wrestling, maybe you're slow to believe not because you don't want to believe, but because you've, uh, you've been badly hurt by previously trusting in the wrong people or the wrong idea. Maybe you've been hurt badly because you hoped for things that you needed to be true, but have watched as those hopes fall to the ground and shatter like glass, and you've cut yourself as you've tried to, bring, to pick up the shards Maybe you've dreamed big dreams and seen those dreams dissolve into puddles of water and puddles of tears. 
built more than one house of cards, only to see them obliterated by a sneeze. So now you're afraid of trusting the wrong person or believing the wrong thing and being let down again. On the other hand, maybe you're a true believer and just don't understand Thomas or the doubting Thomases that you sometimes meet in church or hear about, thinking doubts are a sign of weak faith. Or maybe you actually have some doubts of your own secretly, but you aren't prepared to voice them because you think that questioning God is somehow a sin. So you just pretend that everything is fine. Well, wherever you stand, hopefully today will show you about the value of having doubting Thomases amongst us, having them here with us in church and outside in the world, and encourage all of us to be honest about it and explore some of our own doubts. Let's watch as the story of Thomas unfolds in the reading from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31 on the video. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I think the very first sentence of that passage locates where this story is happening. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jews, and Jesus appears, shown in this painting, this wonderful painting by Rembrandt, which uh, I looked at a number online, and I really warm to this one. It gives a real sense of that, of that moment, I think. Fearful of being hauled away by the same authorities that, they, that had arrested and crucified Jesus, the remaining 11 had probably retreated to the place where they last felt safe, retreated to the upper room where they had shared their last meal with Jesus and to where he had told them that he was going to prepare a place for them declaring that they knew the way to the place he was going to. To which you may remember, Thomas, I think, very reasonably points out something along the lines of, Lord, we haven't got a clue where you're going. How are we supposed to know the way to get there? Thomas, I think, was a realist. He was unable to accept things without questioning them. The sort of guy who voices what most other people are thinking but are often afraid to ask. And from that willingness to speak out, he sets Jesus up for one of the most wonderful yet challenging promises. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But Jesus has now gone. And so the disciples return to the room to remember and mourn what almost was. Who amongst us, when we hear upsetting news, doesn't seek out a familiar place filled with people who can comfort and reassure us. Surely what the nation and particularly the royal family are going through at the moment, gathering family and friends around them. But Thomas wasn't hiding out with the rest of them. Why not? Well, maybe because he wasn't as afraid as they were. Not long before, you may remember, Jesus announced that he was heading for Bethany after word of Lazarus's sickness had reached him. And the rest of the apostles protest because the Jews had just tried to stone him there. But Thomas boldly declares, let us also go with him, that we may die with him. Nothing but disaster might lie ahead, but he at least seemed to have the courage to go along and face it. So where was he when Jesus first appeared? Well, again, we don't know, but I reckon he was probably sitting alone somewhere, staring into the ruins of his life and feeling very numb. He'd risked his life for Jesus and left everything behind to follow him. Maybe he was now regretting it and wondering how he'd put things back together again. And so true to his character, when the others tell him that they've seen Jesus alive, he pretty reasonably again, I think, replies, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger in the wounds left by the nails, and put my hand into his side, 
I won't believe. Now, I can think of plenty of reasons why Thomas would say that. Trauma and disillusionment can easily move us into doubt, if not skepticism, and eventually into downright cynicism. I often said in my military career that I was very happy to be surrounded by skeptics, but not by cynics. I reckon most people are skeptics sometime, and some of us probably more often than we would like to admit. But there's a big difference between being a skeptic or a cynic and being an honest doubter. Some people just don't want to believe. They prefer a life of ungodliness. But Thomas is no cynic, which is why, as we read a week later, he's back in the room with all of the others. Now, think about that. We call this man Doubting Thomas and judge his lack of faith. But he didn't do a runner. He stays. He goes back to the others. And perhaps he's secretly hoping that Jesus will again turn up, which he does. Even though the doors are again locked, Jesus enters, stands amongst them, and says, Peace be with you, exactly as he had done before. And then turning to Thomas, he adds, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. It's this wonderful picture of Carvaggio shows us. Interestingly, we're not actually told what happened then. Catholic tradition holds that Thomas did indeed reach out and touch Jesus, whilst Protestant tradition, I think rather sadly, generally holds out that he didn't. Maybe he didn't, or maybe he just traced the wounds, or maybe, as this famous picture shows, he had a really good dig around. I don't know if you've seen this picture before, but it's fingers having a really good delve into the wound. Either way, if that was what he needed to do in order to overcome his doubts and believe, Jesus allows Thomas to see the wounds for himself, examine them, and even touch them. And at the end of it all, Jesus then tells him, stop doubting and believe. Just as we all learn differently or fall in love differently, so I would suggest we all come to faith differently too. Forgive me, because I know some of you will have heard this before, but you remember Ian Jury, some of you, a great friend who used to worship here at St. Paul's, and who, with me and a lovely lady called Polly, used to run the Youth Fellowship for a number of years. Ian used to say that people largely come to faith by traveling up the M1 or the M2. The M1 is the Damascus Road, 1M in Damascus where, like Paul, they meet and accept Jesus through a striking, deep-down emotional event. The M2 is the Emmaus Road, two M's in Emmaus, where, like Cleopas and an unnamed disciple in Luke's Gospel, we meet Jesus by examining the Scriptures and come to a head-driven understanding of the Gospel truths. Now, it isn't usually just one or the other, just heart or head. But I have to say, for most of my early life, I spent my time on the M25, going round and round in circles, spiritually, unable to get off. But one day, I found myself on the M2, and was eventually, to coin a phrase from Paul, transformed by the renewal of my mind. And I think that happened to Thomas to some degree too, but obviously also the heart experience of confronting Jesus, or being confronted by Jesus. 
I moved from what I now call churchianity to Christianity. I made a decision to become a disciple of Jesus. I wonder what your story is. Finally, Jesus tells Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Now we hear this and think Jesus is probably having a crack at Thomas. He was saying, look Thomas, I've really had to pull out all the stops to make you believe. But God blesses those who believe without any evidence. But I'm not sure that that was what Jesus was saying at all. I reckon he was thinking of all the future generations of Christians when he said this. Those of us who believe even though we haven't seen him working miraculous signs or walking around after the resurrection. I reckon he was thinking about me and about you. And that he wasn't scolding Thomas, but blessing us. Either way, declaring my Lord and my God, Thomas's doubts vanish in the presence of the living Christ, like morning mist in the sunlight. Finally, after these resurrection appearances, Peter decides to go fishing, and Thomas and six of the other disciples tag along, witnessing the miraculous catch of fish as shown here in this wonderful picture of Passeri. It was the culmination of having spent about three years being with Jesus, witnessing his miracles, hearing his teaching, seeing numerous demonstrations of his power, including his power, of course, to raise people like Lazarus from the dead. And seeing the resurrected Christ himself was, to coin a phrase, the icing on the cake. And as a result, his faith became strong and vibrant. Tertullian said about the early Christians that no man would be willing to die unless he knew he had the truth. They would not have died for a dream. They would not have been loyal to a figment of their imagination. And Thomas would surely have agreed with that. The earliest mention of his missionary work comes from Eusebius of Caesarea, who quotes an earlier scholar as saying that Thomas was sent to Parthia in modern-day Iran, taking the gospel message there, and then on to India around 50 AD, and possibly establishing as many as seven churches there. And there, too, according to Syrian Christian tradition, he was martyred in 72 AD, killed with a spear thrust into his side. So what do we learn from all of that? Well, Thomas was handpicked to be one of the 12 apostles. And Jesus knew his character when he chose him. And I have to tell you, he knows your character too when he chose you. It was no surprise to Jesus when Thomas reacted the way he did. He knew that Thomas was prone to question and to doubt. And it's worth remembering that Thomas wasn't the only one into the doubting business. There were plenty of occasions where the apostles failed to understand what Jesus was talking about and questioned his actions. And all of the gospel stories make it absolutely clear that the whole of the resurrection is riddled with fear and doubt and confusion, which is one of the reasons I love the fact that in this picture by Cavagio, two of the other apostles are leaning over Thomas's shoulder and having a good look themselves. 
And whilst we often talk about the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we usually rather skate over the fact that when the eleven went to Galilee, we're told that although when they saw the resurrected Christ they worshipped him, nonetheless, Matthew adds, you may remember, and some doubted. Nevertheless, Jesus commissioned them all, doubters included, just as he he chooses and commissions doubting Thomases today. Why? Because they keep the rest of us honest. Because they're the ones who ask the big questions, questions that we might want to ask but are rather afraid to do so because the vicar may not like it. And they don't settle for easy answers or cheap grace. And we need them. If our church family was Winnie the Pooh, our doubting Thomases would be our Eeyore. They keep us grounded, give us a reality check, and stretch our thinking. They're the ones who can smell baloney from a mile away. So doubting Thomases, maybe one or two of you here, certainly maybe two, one or two watching us online, Stay with us. Never doubt that the church needs you. Stay with us and keep us uncomfortable when we need to be uncomfortable. Keep challenging us not to leave our brains outside the church house doors. But in doing so, be cautious not to be consumed by your doubts and careful who you share them with. Be skeptical enough to doubt your doubts. Stay faithful as Thomas was, stick around, following, serving, praying. God will reveal himself. He will show you the nail prints. And for the rest of us, remember that when Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed, he isn't asking us to blindly put our faith in him. There are always dark times, difficult times, and trying to convince ourselves that everything is fine by hiding away from our uncertainty And those doubts, when they hit us, doesn't usually help much. We, too, need to be honest about our doubts. Investigate them and explore them. Maybe there are some things you doubt because you haven't found satisfactory answers to those big questions yet. Don't be afraid to talk honestly with fellow Christians about them. Keep asking the questions. Over the years, I've had to explore many things that I initially didn't understand. I call them my jam jars. Each jar labeled with one of my uncertainties and put on a shelf. And every so often I take them down, one at a time, or a couple, or just one, and look at the uncertainty and question it, and examine it, and think about it, pray about it. And then sometimes they go back on the shelf. But at other times, and I have to say mostly now, after a number of years, I've looked at them and resolved And I found myself realizing they're no longer a problem. And I'm able to lay them to one side. Exploring them has led me to a deeper, richer faith. I've been able to lay them down at the foot of the cross. As you leave today, you're going to go out this door here. And behind me is that lovely lovely banner which shows people laying down their burdens at the foot of the cross. And I put that up because I thought it looked similar to my thoughts of laying down these doubts when we're finished with them and can move on and press on. Jesus didn't condemn Thomas, I don't think, for his doubt. 
He knew that once Thomas had fought his way through the wilderness of his doubts, he would emerge all the stronger. And he spoke to Thomas as a sincere disciple whose faith was weak, not as one with an evil heart of unbelief. And when he showed Thomas his wounds, he was really showing him how much he loved him. He loved him through his doubts. He loved him into belief. And none of us should ever doubt Jesus' passionate love for us either. So let's embrace the doubters inside and outside of the church. Encourage them, love them just the way they are. Walk with them. And in doing so, pray that they'll catch a glimpse of Jesus in our care for them. As will we when they walk alongside us in our own times of uncertainty. Amen. Thank you, Tim. I, together with uh, Becca by video, are going to lead us in our prayers now. But I wonder if we would do well just to take a moment of silence first, just to identify what our doubts are and what we want to bring to God. We've been encouraged that God meets us in them, that God can use them, and that he reveals himself to us when we invite him to. So let's, in a moment of silence, bring before God anything that we're struggling with that we want him to help us with. Father God, thank you that you know us. You know everything about us. The things we find easy, the things we find hard. The things we feel sure and confident about and the things we don't. So meet us in our doubts, we pray. Speak into them. Strengthen us. Assure us, inspire us, that we might go on to serve you as Thomas did, affirmed and strengthened by you. Amen. So as we move to our intercessions, I'm going to start by praying in the light of the Duke of Edinburgh's passing. And then Becca will continue our prayers before I lead us in the Lord's Prayer together. So let us pray.
Father God, we thank you for the faithful service, service of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, to this nation. Thank you that as the many tributes, programs and articles in the last two days have made clear, he had a firm faith in you and an absolute commitment to use his gifts to support the Queen, promote many worthwhile causes and make a positive difference to this country and to this world. Thank you that for over 70 years he was able to do so, with many millions benefiting from those charities and he enjoying good health almost until the end. Thank you that he was such a blessing to the Queen, as she has been such a blessing to us. Thank you that he brought great stability and wisdom to the royal family and sustained them through difficult times. We pray for all those who grieve for him today, especially for Our Majesty, our Queen. May you comfort her, sustain her through her grief, and give her your peace. May she know your presence with her as she is exposed to so much attention at this very sad time. May you draw her closer to her family and to you, and give her wisdom in all the decisions she has to take. We pray too for other members of the family, especially her children, Charles, Anne, Andrew and Edward. May they too find comfort from you and find consolation in Philip's long and fruitful life and the good times they spent with him. May they be inspired by his example of selfless service and Christian faith. We pray for others who lead us at this painful moment, for our Prime Minister, government and religious leaders of all faiths. Help them to help us to find comfort and hope at this time and to manage the situation wisely with the complications that the pandemic brings. We pray that preparations for the funeral would go smoothly and that it would bring glory to you. And finally, we pray for the people of this nation who are distressed and upset by this news. Give us all the comfort and consolation that we need and faith that you will lead the next generation of leaders as you have led Philip and our Queen. Thank you, Father, for your comfort and your love. Amen. And now Becca will continue to lead us in prayer. The prayer today is based around Tim's sermon, Thomas also use some of the words of Lexio 365, the prayer app. The responses to our prayers today are as follows. I will say, for those who struggle to believe, you will respond, give eyes of faith to trust what cannot be seen. Firstly, we pray over the area of science, where two worlds collide of evidence and that of the miraculous. As spring stops and starts with our mixed weather of sunshine and snow, we give thanks for your creation, for the miracle of camellias flowering, for the bluebell carpets erupting in the woods and the lambs leaping in the fields. And at the same time, we give thanks for our scientists who make sense of the natural world. Many of them have been working tirelessly on solutions to the coronavirus. Thank you for their incredible minds and the work that they are doing. 
We pray for Christians who work in the scientific arena and who champion issues of morality and are able to explain the compatibility of faith and science. And we pray for those who are less scientific in the under 30 age group, trying to make sense of the ever-changing science around the AstraZeneca vaccine. Help them to make informed decisions around which of the vaccines to take. For those who struggle to believe, give eyes of faith to trust what cannot be seen. We pray for those who work in the mission field, who see miracles on a daily basis, who recognise miracles and who live by faith, who have responded to God's calling on their lives, sometimes bearing heavy burdens financially or in terms of home comforts. We remember some of our mission partners, such as MMI, Flame, Brimhurst, Frontline, Love Moldova and the many others not mentioned here. They see and share the miraculous. They prophesy and speak God-ordained truth. Thank you for their bravery and faith. Help us to honour them. For those who struggle to believe, give eyes of faith to trust what cannot be seen. We pray for our world. Much of it is mired in unbelief, in doubt, in the secular and increasingly in a complete absence of hope. We pray for the broken people, the broken institutions and the broken countries who do not believe. We pray for the volatile situation in Northern Ireland at the moment and the risk to the precious peace in that part of the UK. We pray for the situation in Myanmar and the political situation with their diplomats in London. And closer to home, we pray for our families and friends who struggle to believe our experiences of God, who perhaps mock us when we share our stories or who are completely disinterested. We ask that for those who struggle to believe, give eyes of faith to trust what cannot be seen. And we pray for ourselves. I can resonate with Thomas's struggle to believe the experiences of the other disciples. I've heard people share their experiences of God and the miraculous, and sometimes what they're telling me seems completely impossible. So I've dismissed the experience. Lord, I remind myself today that you are the God of the impossible. Is there anything or anyone who I have been too quick to dismiss? Are you asking me to reconsider today? For those who struggle to believe, give eyes of faith to trust cannot be seen. Amen. Yeah, taught us. Yeah, taught us. Yeah. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.
I hope that you have been as blessed at home as we have been here at St. Paul's with that beautiful music. Thank you so much. Please be seated. We're coming towards the end of our service now. Um, And I want to say actually a massive thank you for the team. I've been following on YouTube, on my phone. So at some points, I could see Tom and Tim in real life on the screen behind me and on my phone. So I don't know if that's a a holy Tomity or Timothy, something like that. Um, But um, it's great to see your comments um, and engagement. Thank you so much for being an active part of this service. And we do welcome you um, to come along and join us um, here next week and in the subsequent weeks as well. But how wonderful that we can put these things together and there's a lot of time and work and effort goes on behind the scenes so particularly to the tech team thank you thank you so much faith and doubt so closely connected it helps us to realize that sometimes the questions are the answers when we get those jam jars out and realize that they bring us closer to the truth the light and the way with Jesus so in closing prayer We praise you and we bless you, our risen Lord Jesus, King of glory, for you come to us even in our doubting. Through the sovereign work of your spirit and the loving hands of your people, continue to reveal yourself where doubt is stronger than faith. To you, Lord Jesus, whose resurrection body bears the marks of the cross, be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Amen. And so in the week ahead, apparently we're promised some sunshine. We also have a bit of an opening up. So I know that many people will be blessed, particularly those businesses in retail or hospitality that are being able to start to open their doors a bit to a, a sense of a new normal, whatever that may be. And I pray that we'll all be blessed in this week ahead. So a final blessing and peace. As the risen Christ came and stood among his disciples and said, Peace be with you. They were glad when they saw the Lord. They said, Hallelujah. The peace of the Lord be with you. So may the peace of the Lord be with all of us. Go in peace. With much love. Amen. Thank you, everybody. And thank you.
okay, because I, so I meant to ask you, I'm saying come along, and then I didn't know whether... <laughs>